Welcome. Thank you for joining us today on Media for Progress, where we bring people together to discuss our relationship with democracy. I'm Stephanie, and I'm a mother and a student and an activist. On today's episode, I have a dear friend of mine who I've had the pleasure of knowing for over 12 years, Edwin Enciso. Thank you for joining us today, Edwin. Um, Hi, Steph. Hi, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. You know, I'm a kid from Queens, New York. was really lucky to grow up there. It's one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the country. So I grew up with basically the world in my backyard, and it was amazing. I got into organizing, community organizing, through my mother and church organizing. That's how, how she did her organizing in community. And one of the earliest memories I have is of my mother having me sit at a table where she would bring together women, not only from her congregation, but from the neighborhood. And they'd talk about their experience. And of course the immigrant experience has so many challenges. And sometimes those conversations would get really, really personal. I remember as a little kid, you know, being wide-eyed because these women were being very candid, very honest, and sometimes sharing experiences that were really painful. I think what my mother was trying to help me understand was the essence of solidarity, of human connection. What I noticed even as a child is that when one woman would share her personal story, especially of suffering, other women would respond in kind. They'd share their story. And then there was a moment of connection between them. Later on, as I, I got more involved in not only church organizing, but community organizing, I came to learn how powerful the experience of having something that within your own mind is connected to a very powerful emotional experience. And then when you share that with someone, that person actually becomes connected to that. So it's very powerful. And then when you do that together at the same time, it's even more so. So much so that if you connect people to an EKG that can measure things like their, their heart rates and their, their heart rhythms, if the two people started that conversation with different heart rhythms, they actually, over the course of that conversation, harmonize, wow. which is really amazing. It suggests that this experience is so essential to being human that, that it's even ingrained in our biology. Absolutely. How are you? I mean, I, there's so much going on in the world and so much going on in the news, but I'm really curious, what are some of the things that, that you've been seeing that you're worried about? Yeah, I think it's hard for a lot of us to even know what's going on day to day. As a mom, I'm just generally concerned about what our future is going to look like and what world am I going to leave for my son. I, I live in Minnesota, just a little bit outside of Minneapolis and spent many years living in Minneapolis, actually. And so with the murder of George Floyd and the trauma that the city is still experiencing and working through and kind of recovering from... I think a lot of us are just kind of have like this new spark to get involved and, you know, with mutual aid groups and community organizing. And, and I think in some ways it can be intimidating where you can get in. How do I start? How do I, you know, who am I to even start to organize anything? So that's kind of where I'm at is just trying to find my place within all of this and to do something meaningful and impactful and to hopefully do whatever I can to uh, avoid another 2016 election. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I definitely hear you, especially when your community undergoes something traumatic. It's There's so many feelings that come to mind. Not that long ago here, there was a raid where there were immigrant workers at a meat processing facility. And I remember uh, going to a local church to help out where they were organizing to help the families. And it was just really awful. I ended up helping with the processing. There were lawyers who, who came to volunteer their time to help the families manage because their raid by ICE, over 100 people were, were imprisoned. And, you know, you had all of these families in distress. And it is, it, it is really challenging when, when you, you're not sure what to do. You know, I, I remember walking the halls and you're listening to people on the phones on there. They're just in so much agony because their lives as they knew it have been shattered. Uh, they've lost uh, not just a, a breadwinner, but also their spouse. And, and that's the, 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 the father or the mother. And it's, it's really traumatic for, for the spouse and for the children and for the extended family. And everyone doesn't know what to do because it, the, this is such a huge blow and a, de a radical departure from how life was before. And so I, I, I agree with you that, that that experience of like, what, what do you do in response, I, I think is critical. I think you're, you're asking a question that a lot of people are, are asking. It's how do we operate within this country to deal with some of these, these huge challenges that we face? Absolutely. It's, it's important to, to do what my mother did, which is bring people together, you know, to, to share that experience and talk about it. But one of the challenges that we have is that beyond that, we're having trouble making this democracy work. I mean, you, what was your own impression of like what happened at the, the Capitol um, January 6th? I mean, how, how did that make you feel? I think it kind of infuriated a lot of us and how, I mean, you can see just a complete difference. Again, just my brain goes back to George Floyd and the way that there was this whole militarization happening in Minneapolis towards peaceful protesters. Like I saw people literally being tear gassed who were just sitting there with their arms up. And then to see people who are, gun-bearing, angry, and violent, being let into the Capitol, it's absolutely infuriating and just a clear example of, of what we've all been trying to, to explain to people. Like, yes, racism exists and it's very real. And it's, and it's really scary because just like you were saying, it's just all of these sort of entities are so huge. And so it can be kind of overwhelming to find, well, I'm just one person, how do I fight this in a sustainable way? And, you know, just within this whole system. So it's, uh, I think one thing though, that you, you mentioned that was really important that kind of is like resonating in my mind is within these spaces that we're kind of starting to slowly enter it's so important to just listen, to just to listen to people who are a part of this that are experiencing these hardships and not to come with an agenda to them, you know, to be there as a listener, 
to learn how to help and to kind of go from there. So yeah, sorry, it's a lot. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of us, we need a connection or relation to, to ex personal experience. And something like democracy, you know, it's a relationship that we have with over 320 million people. So it's really hard to, to say like, how do I manage that kind of a relationship? But there are some ways in which it, it's not that different from other relationships that we have. So when, when, we, when we think about like, how do we address some of these, like, how do I personally get involved? How can I, I respond to something like uh, the, the problems that you saw in this, in, with, um, with criminal justice reform and then with immigration reform? It's, it's important to, to keep in mind that most relationships need a sort of um, an airing of differences, right? But then once you have that, you really do need also um, for, for people to then present ideas, like what are we going to do about this? But eventually you need like a, a decision to be made. And when you're working within a group, be it a church, be it a union, uh, your, your place of work, it's important once the group has made a decision to then do your best to be supportive of the group as you would want to be supported, right? And we, we know this in our friendships, we know this in, in um, marriage, we know this in our churches and our unions and our, our everyday work life. You know, that's, that's how groups function because if you don't, if, if there's this cycle of unending disagreement and anger and rage what can happen is people people can just want to walk away yeah. i mean you've probably experienced a personal relationship where it's unhealthy the level of disagreement that you're having and rather than you know the people are getting more and more fixated and it communication ends and you're just you're you get really hardened and then people can just want the argument to stop and they're willing to like do anything to get the and you saw that the capital right uh, on January 6th as people stop believing that democracy can work and they can take they can try to use things like violence to advance their agenda absolutely I love the connections that you make too with comparing it to relationships because that's that's what this is all about is just our relationship with with democracy and how do we take care of that relationship how do we nurture it how do we go through their like a relationship therapy with democracy so i think it's a perfect way to to describe it to people yeah and we we have to keep in mind that there are real dangers that we're running up against so when when it comes to the capital insurrection what you're looking at is the problem of autocracy right which is what democratic movement building emerged to fight autocracy. Leftism emerged in the struggle of Republican governance against autocracy. And it's a, a real threat because what, what they're talking about is the organized rejection of facts, of logic, of even basic decency for right. political followership. And that gets really, really dangerous. This sort of strongman politics um, that you saw with Donald Trump is very, very frightening. I mean, think about what it means that 47% of the population voted for that 
even though they had four years of evidence of what that was about. Exactly. I think it kind of, you can see clearly how that whole campaign has taken advantage of a lot of ignorant people who don't realize that these policies are also negatively impacting them. I think at some point, we all want the same thing. You know, we want a healthy, happy, long-lasting society, and we're just trying to figure out how we can do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. So I'm, I'm excited to see how, how we can just bring more people together instead of continuing all of this divisiveness, which is exactly what got Donald Trump elected to begin with. And at that point, I think, you know, even if you look at a John McCain conservative, someone who is in favor of things like comprehensive immigration reform, you know, we can battle it out a little bit about budget stuff and whatnot. But when you're talking about people in a way that's no longer humanizing them, I think it's, it's really alarming to, to know that that type of politic exists and not only exists, but is, like you said, 47% of the population voted in favor of that. 74.2 million votes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's really, um, it's something you have to take seriously, but I'm glad you mentioned John McCain. And this gets into how you as an individual can kind of understand how this thing works. So I think one of the most important things that the most important accomplishments of democratic movement building is what you see in the presidential election process. So you have across 50 states, you have this massive discussion with tens of millions of people. And we spend literally billions of dollars uh, to educate people on the issues. We have tens of thousands of media reports discussing the different ideas from different political parties. Um, and, and people participate in this process online. They volunteer countless hours uh, to, to help engage their neighbors. And when you put that much effort into a process, that's what gives that process legitimacy, right? That level of participation. And we really don't have any other process that reaches that level of involvement by the people. And the people can vote what groups they want to support. And the, the primary process produces large coalitions, and it produces typically two or three large coalitions of voters, and then they head into the general election. One of the challenges that we face is that we don't give that process its due. And it, it's important to kind of consider like the damage that you do when you just, after you have that much debate and discussion, you ignore that as if that didn't matter. And you just go right back to fighting over everything again, as if we didn't just have this discussion. You know, and I, I think of like a major purchase, like purchasing a house, you know, with two spouses. You know, if you go through a six month process and then you come to a, an important point of decision, and typically neither person got everything they wanted, but you, you came together and this could be a really good step forward. If at that point when you're at the negotiating table, you as one of the spouses who maybe got less of what you wanted, want to take that opportunity to like renegotiate and ignore and throw out that... I mean, you do damage, not just 
to your negotiations with whoever it is selling the house, right? But you do damage the relationship to the belief that you can have a, um, agreement building, you can have negotiation, and then I can trust you to support me as, as you want to be supported, right? When we're both together at this negotiating table. Because then what's the point of, of going through that process? Then you really don't believe in that process of, of building agreement if you're just going to eject it. And really no group can function. You know, if, if as a union, you agree on negotiating terms for a contract, and then at the point of negotiation with the boss, you're going to throw that out with your faction because you guys wanted X, Y, and Z, right? And leverage these delicate negotiation process to do that. You harm your union, your, the ability of workers to come to a decision and then move together jointly. And so we, I think it's really important that we take a look at what was agreed on through that process, give it greater respect. And if we can do that about the one political faction that maybe won the most votes during the primary process, you know, as a leftist, there are a lot of things that, you know, I want Star Trek um, right. as a future, right? You know, Absolutely. this, this um, post-capitalist society that's dedicated to the potential of not only the individual, but us, us as a species, and, you know, that's my dream. Right. But I don't expect that out of any, you know, two-year plan of governing, right. which is what, what we, we debate uh, during the elections. So I've got to be willing to support others as I want to be supported. And it's important then to, to take that point of agreement and to then proceed united. Because if we don't, then we run into this problem of the 74.2 million voters who have a very different politics right. and what we saw on January 6th. Absolutely. I think a big thing that sort of encompasses all of that is compromise. And that's so important in any type of healthy relationship to have, you know, like you said, you gotta, you gotta meet in the middle and where, and you look at our country, what are we like 300 million people over that way over um, and growing. And so you can't have, if, if even just between in a relationship of any kind between two people, you have to compromise of a relationship of over 300 million people, you absolutely have to compromise. And I think oftentimes people associate like the word compromise with some type of negative connotation and associate it with defeat of some kind. And, uh, and that's just not, that's just not the case. You have to, you absolutely have to compromise because again, if not, we're neglecting a huge part of the population who will feel neglected that will recognize, you know, hey, I'm being left out of these conversations and will vote for somebody who's even more effective than Trump. Um, so yeah, compromise, compromise, compromise. <laughs> oh, I, I, that's exactly what my, my work um, is, is focused on. And that, that's what makes me so excited about this project and for progress, because we need people to, to have a space where all the work that went into that presidential 
primary and presidential general election process, all the agreement built. Uh, we, we have 81.2 million people that agreed uh, with sort of a non-regressive platform. I'm desperate to help them have the experience of democracy working for them. You know, we saw that with the initial stimulus, that's $2 trillion. It is a, a new deal level of investment in the country, that kind of historic investment. Um, you know, I have a lot of disagreements with how Manchin does his politics, but if I'm not willing to acknowledge that he came through with about $1.2 trillion in agreement through that process, then I don't deserve for him to acknowledge what the benefits that, that on the left we've brought together through the sort of New Deal type stimulus that we just passed. And then I don't deserve to be supported if, if I'm not willing to acknowledge the other the way that I wanna be acknowledged. And, and these 81.2 million, it, we have a responsibility not only to our country, but because of issues like climate change, because of the responsibility that we have through the, the level of power that this nation has in the world, the impact that we have, I mean, it's a, it's a critical coalition, not only to the interests of, of the things that I want in the long term and for this country, but really for the world. Uh, we have this, this really great training program that I'd love to talk with you uh, about, because I, I think it it helps people understand how they can participate in this thing called democracy and leverage it to advance the things that they care about. Definitely, yeah. And I'd love to hear about it. How do I, again, where do I start? Like how, <laughs> how do I fit in this whole, this whole thing? I would love to know. <laughs> no, thank you for that. I'm glad you asked. I think it's helpful to take a look at what Trump supporters are doing, because it helps us understand the urgency of the time that we're living in. Despite everything that's happened these last four years before the last election, the people in that politic are fundraising. They're recruiting people. They're doing canvassing. And what that's doing is it's helping build momentum. And we've got to be careful because there's a real dangerous pattern. After the elections, a lot of times, the people who are, are non-regressive, what they do is they slow down. Um, they take a break. And what's dangerous is that if the opposition is organizing strongly and we're not, then we stand to repeat what happened after 2008 and 2010 when the opposition was able to take back the Congress. And, and not just the Congress, but so many of the state legislatures that they gerrymandered us into this nightmare that we're in. So that's why focusing on what unites us is so important and helping people learn how to do this work, uh, leveraging this model. And that's what this training program is for. What we're doing is developing a program where people get a chance to, with others, learn about this theory of change, like how we leverage the the presidential elections and the platform that emerges to help that group of people advance the things that they can, gave their consent to. And people need 
opportunities to not only learn, but to practice. And one of the challenges that we have with way too many programs is that either there's not enough training or there's training, but then there isn't practice and, right. and a strong segue into doing. And we know from the forgetting curve is that if you don't implement or start using what you're learning right away, it's very easy to forget a lot of it. So that's why we get people, we help them learn by doing. The other thing that this program is doing is that it tightly interconnects community organizing, legislative organizing, and electoral organizing. Because ultimately what we need to help people understand is how to integrate the people's community organizing with the people's lawmaking, with the people's representation in an integrated, comprehensive fashion. And that's what gives us a chance to then more effectively counter what's happening among Trump politics. Because that's the, the other challenge that groups face. Some groups are very good at lobbying, you know, the legislative engagement, but then they don't do or they neglect the electoral organizing. And some groups do a lot of electoral organizing, but then they win the election and they start neglecting community organizing. Right. And you need all of these things woven together to really bring the, the potential of all of them um, into play effectively. And it, it helps to get into examples. Um, right. Like how... How does this all work? Because I, I get it for sure. You know, I see the importance of getting all of these entities to not only coexist with one another, but to work strongly with one another. Um, but wh yeah, what does that look like? <laughs> can you give like, like a tangible example so I can just kind of envision what you're talking about? Sure, sure. Um, so we, we talked about um, what was happening in your community with George Floyd. And that's an example. And of course, another issue that people are concerned about is immigration reform. Those are all really, really difficult issues, but it might be easier to, to pull away, pull back towards something that's a little easier and a little bit more relatable. So let's look at something like solar power that a lot of people are doing in their homes and a lot of people are, are thinking about adding to their homes. Right. So there's the idea of helping finance the loans to purchase solar power, uh, solar panels for your home and, and batteries for the home with help from the local government, which can co-sign loans for people who can't do it on their own. And what a program like that does is it it's a sort of common sense thing, you know, it helps us um, make energy more affordable. It helps low-income families. It helps add value to homes. It helps with the environment. And there's a lot of interconnection between different groups on this issue. But in order to, to advance something like that, you not only have to build community agreement for it, it's not enough to have a policy like that I just mentioned, you know, have the government set up a program to help people um, access financing. But you 
ultimately you have to elect at the local level, at the state level, potentially at the federal level, legislative majorities that agree. Right. So you that involves not only making demands, which are important. You, you have to uh, make ask for what you want, but it's also and it's of course it's important to have the policy together. What it, how do, how would it work? What would that look like so right. that people can agree to it? But ultimately, you need candidates that run for office on the idea and that win on the idea with the pledge to do it. And once you organize society in that way, that's how democracy works, is then when they get into office, then they're able to, to pass that, just like we pass the stimulus, right. just like we're looking at all of this jobs and infrastructure bill that's working its way uh, through Congress right now uh, with the help of Republicans. Um, right. And and uh, and conservative Democrats is this um, bill that we were talking about earlier with Mansion. You need a, a process that helps people learn how to how to do that work and and organize around that. People need to do things like field work, you know, the phone banking, canvassing. They need help with communications. You know, how do you talk about the idea? How do you share the information? operations, fundraising, you know, how do we pay to get that communication and that the word out, you, you need to do fundraising. So one of the things that the training does is it helps us address some of the gaps that we have in doing this kind of organizing. A lot of people feel shy about grassroots fundraising. They feel shy about knocking on doors or making phone calls. And so the reason why we, we take those on right from the beginning, we think that if we can help you work with others in addressing your own timidity about these things and you overcome these challenges, you get that sense of empowerment personally, you get that sense of empowerment collectively. And then when your training group works with other campaigns, you get to see this at a larger scale. You know, I was part of grassroots effort called CIR Now. In Florida, for example, in 2009, there were only five co-sponsors for comprehensive immigration reform. And I once went to a White House town hall series of events throughout Florida that brought together Latino community leaders. Each one of these at the, the session on immigration, I would ask the, the folks like, do you know who those people were that co-sponsored, those five co-sponsors? And most didn't know. In fact, nobody knew. And what that tells you is that here are community leaders, Latino community leaders, on one of the most important issues that we're addressing. And in 2009, at the local level, they didn't know who, which means that they weren't doing the work of organizing that support. They weren't working together to figure out how to do that. They weren't tracking it. Uh, so we help people learn how you build that support, not only at the grassroots level, but then how to organize the votes. And ideally, if you get denied, that reform then in the elections to help elect more people who will do who will pass the reform that you need right it's so easy for us to not be happy with the candidate and just not vote and that only does more harm to us so you can see how it just kind of sustainably will build power for non-regressive policy and how you know if you're not truly serving the people, we're going to get someone in that can. And having like a structure, you know, it's not just people from all different sort of independent parties on ballots and whatnot, but 
I feel like so much of this type of organization is not something that is happening. And so to see that come to life, I think will do a lot of sustainable good on the left. If you know some of our listeners are interested, how would we start to kind of get involved? What does that look like? Well, you can visit the website forprogress.org and there's a link to the training program where you can see a description of the idea and some of the, the things that we've discussed here. And then at the at the bottom of that, there's a link to a sign-on page and then what the program involves. If you agree, then you can enter your information, sign on, and then we'll be in touch to help you with the onboarding process. It's interesting that you mentioned how people are concerned and interested in this. And they, they do have sometimes trouble figuring out a way to be effective. They want to make a difference. They want to do something about the things that concern them. It's key to help them understand that the consent of the people is the, the point of organization. And relating to it is, is what makes the difference. So, for example, the reason why we leverage the, the platform, and it's to your advantage as, a, as someone who's interested in addressing issues, is that you already have 81.2 million people right. who've consented to it. You have literally billions of dollars that have gone into helping elect a Congress to that. So if there's already that kind of agreement, then we can help you, both you personally and a group that you already work with, work as a team with other people, leveraging that power. Right. And let's build on that now. And let's protect it. Because if we lose 2022, you know, we see what happened after 2010. There was almost no further progress when it came to moving stronger reform forward. So we have this this program. And if you work together with other folks, you also gain personally from this. So what I've seen with community organizing is that sometimes at work or in a person's personal life, they don't get to practice some of the things that they're interested in, you know, project management. Sometimes people have challenges with things like time management that they so we give them a space, an opportunity to, to examine talents, to, to explore skills that they'd like to develop within projects that can help a great deal of people. And so it's, it's really nice uh, to, to see people get involved and to watch them take advantage of it and then work together with others on things that they really care about. Absolutely. And it sounds like because again, so much of this work can feel, like you said, really intimidating to make those phone calls to ask for people to, you know, take out their wallets. And so within all of that, there's so much learning involved. And it sounds like it's the type of space that really, that, that nurtures that learning, that provides a slower sort of pace for people to explore what they're good at, to find you know, maybe you go into this and you think that you're really good at uh, field work or something. And then as you're learning, you figure out, no, I'm actually, I'm really good at fundraising or, you know, it sounds, it, it sounds like a really good opportunity to not only get involved, but to also like learn more about yourself in the process and to connect with other people too, that are trying to do this type of work. And it, I think it, it takes good people to come together in this type of space. So it it sounds really great. And I'm I'm excited to to see it all come together. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll leave you with um, this, this final example. So you mentioned grassroots fundraising. It is a challenge. A lot of people get worried about the moment of asking for, for help right. and making that, that ask. The thing to, that, that's neat about grassroots fundraising is starting with what's more manageable. So we leverage it as an opportunity for you to understand your power, the power of your personal network. A lot of times, uh, income challenged and, and uh, oppressed communities are, get disconnected from their own power. So you have family, you have friends, you have professional relationships. And if you call and talk with these folks and have this kind of conversation, um, you can learn that they also have connections to other professional associations, to faith spaces, to um, other people that they know within their industry. And this kind of social capital is something that we want people to connect with. So, you know, starting off with something that's doable, like putting out together a list of the people that you know is a great place to start. And then having those initial conversations just to, to share what you know and, and asking people for support. If you start practicing with the people that you know it's, and you, you ask the question, you make the mistakes, you get the hang of it, but you're with people that you know. Right. And by the time that you work through that list of people, you also get a sense of, okay, my people also know other people, right? right? And so the next time that you, you then run through the people that they know, um, it, you've got experience, you've had some practice. And then when you're doing this kind of work with other people, you know, you might start with an amount five, 10, $25, but as you're working within this team of other people, you're fundraising together, right? So a goal of 100 um, done by one person is interesting. But then when you have the experience of doing it with 10 or 20 other people, then it becomes a thousand or $2,000. And what can happen collectively, that's um, interesting. And then that group of people, once they've had the experience, they've had their network, and then when they want to fundraise for something else, they're able to do even more. And that kind of care and the thought that went into developing that training program is the same kind of care that we put into the canvassing program and the community event organizing uh, training that we're doing and the campaign development training. So I'm, I'm really glad to have uh, the opportunity to do this work with people who also care just as much as I do about community and helping the people organize their lawmaking power and their representative power. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest takeaways from all of that is that, you know, this sense that we've been talking about just feeling overwhelmed and feeling, you know, so small within this huge complex system that we're very powerful in numbers and we just need something like this program to connect with one another um, and to make this you know, all possible and make those steps in the right direction for change that we all need. And uh, 
not only in this type of space, but I think in general, I think people carry so much shame in asking for help. And, and it's actually a really powerful thing to do to realize, hey, I, I, I can't do this alone. I do need help. And then the person helping you in that process too um, is equally as empowered. So I'm a, yeah, I, I'm really excited about all of this. And thank you so much for sharing all of this. Thank you, Steph. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say thank you to everyone for joining us today on Media for Progress. And again, thank you to Edwin for always, always interesting, fun, learning, you know, conversations. Um, I appreciate that so much. So if you guys enjoyed today's discussion, please like, subscribe, and share. And I'll see you soon. Let's keep this conversation going.